Wow, this is unbelievable. Just looking at this crowd, and there's a lot of things unbelievable about it, impressive about it, but I mentioned this to my wife, and maybe I ought to introduce her to you first before I say what I'm gonna say, but my wife Penny is with me, and I've been out here many times without Penny because we have five children, and when we were much younger, one of the two of us had to stay home. We couldn't always come out to the conferences together, and she volunteered to stay because she would take better care of the children. So, Penny, would you please stand? Would you do that? This is my wife, Penny. We have five children, and we have 13 grandchildren. And uh, we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary in January of this year. So we have been together a long, long time. About 13 years of bliss, and the rest was a blizzard, if you know what I mean, something like that. No, I'm just kidding you. If you're together, if you're with anybody for 50 years, you're gonna have a problem once in a while. I want you to know that. So I'm looking at a lot of young people here. I'm just warning you, all right? I'm just warning you. I'm not uh, uh, trying to counsel you not to stay married for a long time. I'm just saying, you better be prepared. That's all I'm saying, all right? It is an honor to be here and an honor to be part of Mission Focus. Our church and um, myself and our church have been missionary-minded going back probably, our church is over 50 years old, but almost back to the very beginning of First Bible Baptist Church in Rochester. My predecessor was big in missions. His name was Jim Modlish. I became the, the, he was the second pastor. I became the third pastor. We now have the fourth pastor who was a missionary for 11 years in Africa. But during that time, we have supported somewhere in the neighborhood of about 150 different missionaries over the history of our 50 year history of our church. In fact, my brother, who's nine years younger than me, is a missionary himself. So we love missionaries and we have been very involved in missionaries and uh, I've been on many mission trips over the years to several different continents and enjoyed and have been very much involved in missions. Now let me clarify something though. Before I go any further, and I said this to uh, the folks this morning in church and I want to repeat this, not that they need to hear it, but everybody needs to hear this at least once. And that is this that missions is not a church program. Okay, listen carefully to what I'm saying. Sometimes we get the idea that missions is, uh, you know, once a month we take a second offering and we do that for missionaries and we give it away to somebody in Africa or Europe or South America or whatnot. Missions is not a church program. The church is God's missions program. This is God's missions program. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to take anything away from those who, as our youth pastor said here tonight, change their address. They leave the United States of America and they go to uh, Europe or they go to Africa or they go to Asia or someplace like that. I'm not trying to take anything away from people like that. As Paul Clark counseled many times, everyone ought to consider doing that, but it isn't for everyone. 
But let me just say this, being a missionary is for everyone. You say, that's a contradiction. No, that's not a contradiction. You're a missionary. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. Do you understand that? The mission is to reach the world with the gospel. The Bible tells us at least five times in the first five books of the New Testament that we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the mission to every creature. Let me tell you, we're supposed to go to Jerusalem, Acts 1, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. I guarantee you that Kansas City, Missouri was the uttermost part of the earth when Jesus Christ said that. There weren't a, probably a lot of people here. There weren't a lot of Christians here. Maybe there was nobody here. I don't know what the history is. Some Indians or what kind of indigenous people were here back in those days. But this is, Rochester, New York is the uttermost, the armpit. I could give you other body parts of, of the world. So right here, folks, when we're talking about mission focus, I understand that what we're trying to do in this conference is we're trying to convince everybody here to consider what Paul Clark said. Consider going somewhere else. But if you don't, you're a missionary right here. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ right here. And I might add this, if you are discipling anybody, you are a leader and you better buy that book from the, you better. We're, anybody that's discipling anybody is leading somebody. You know what a leader is? The definition of a leader is someone who has someone following him or her. That's what a leader is. So you need to know what the Bible says about discipleship, what the Bible says about leadership, and what the Bible says about the mission that all of us as God's people. Now, if you're not a Christian, it's not your mission, but we would like to convince you to join us. We certainly would. And that's part of our mission is to bring the word of God, the truth of God to you, to bring you into the fold, to bring you into the family of God, to bring you into the body of Christ. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible tonight and go to the book of Acts. Acts in the 17th chapter. And the title of my message tonight is, big question mark, to the unknown God. Our goal is to make Jesus Christ known in this world. Now, we're to bring honor and glory to God. We're to please God. We know that from many passages, Revelation chapter 4, 10 and 11 is one. We're here to bring pleasure to God. Without faith, Hebrews tells us it's impossible to please God, but you can't please God or worship God and bring glory to God until you get to know him, until you get to know him. So the chief goal for us right now is to get to know God so that we will bring honor and glory to him. Now, the particular context of this story is Paul the Apostle. We're going to pick up the story, if we can, in the 16th verse of Acts chapter 17. It says, Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. 
He was being a missionary. In fact, this takes place on what we call Paul's second missionary trip. But he's talking about God. He's talking about Jesus. He's being a witness. He's doing what all of us have been called to do. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to, unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world in all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now we're going to pray in just a second. But for those of you that didn't read your Bible today, we got some Bible reading done, okay? So you can check the box in the back of your Bible. But let's... let's Go to the Lord and pray. Father, help us now. We've said a lot here. Paul said a lot here. But I pray that you will help me to kind of boil this down to make a big point to everyone that is here this evening. We want to focus on reaching the world, starting right here within this room, outside the doors of this building, Kansas City, the state of Missouri, the United States of America, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So, Father, help me now to 
share with these folks the truths that you put on my heart and my mind. Help me to say the things that are most important. Delete those. Ignore those things that are not. For your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Now I don't mind telling you that sitting here in this crowd with this group of people that I feel a weight of responsibility on me. And one of the great reasons, it's not just because I'm preaching. I've preached probably eight to 10,000 sermons in my life. But as I look around this room tonight, Pastor Sam, there's a lot of young people here. Now, I want to ask a question. I know this is weird, but how many of you are 35 years old or younger? Would you raise your hand? 30, look at this. 35 years old or younger. Now, you may put your hands down. Now, the rest of you aren't going to admit this, but how many of you are 35 years old or older? Would you raise your hand? Well, there's a lot of you here, too. A lot of old goomers. You may put your hands down. This is quite a mix of people here tonight. Now, the book of Acts covers about 35 years of history. From the time we get to Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 28, we're covering about 35 years of history. But by the time we get halfway into the book of Acts, maybe two-thirds of the way into the book of Acts, look back in verse 6 of chapter number 17. Look back in verse number 6. It says, these are they which turned the world upside down. Now that started years before, not 35 years before, less than 35 years before, with a group of about 120 people. 120 people. And then there were revivals and salvations that take place in the early part of the book of Acts. And by the time we get to chapter 17, they had a reputation. Christians had a reputation that they turned the world upside down. Now, I'm going to guess that there's more than 120 people in this room right now. A lot more than 120. Now, if 120 of us or more just got a hold of what those people got a hold of, and it's all revealed right there in your Bible, in your New Testament, and particularly in the book of Acts, what they did, it's really kind of a manual of missions work. That's what the book of Acts is. If we could get a hold of that, could we turn the world upside down in 35 years? Now, some of us, like me, Let's see, I'd be a hundred and... No, I don't think I'm going to make that. But those of you that are under 35 years of age, you're going to be coming... You're going to be like me. Healthy, fit as a fiddle, ready to go uh, to work and do whatever. Work eight, ten hours a day if you need be. But think, just think what the number of people in here in 35 years, those of you that are 35 and younger, and I'm not leaving you old goomers out, because you people are going to pay for it. That's what they're here for, right, Brother Sam? You old-timers are going to pay for what these young people are going to do. You're going to be supporting them. But nonetheless, can you imagine turning the world upside down from Kansas City, Missouri? And I know you're sitting there saying, you know, I've heard people say stuff like that before, and it hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened because we haven't, or you haven't, taken it seriously. You haven't taken it seriously. Because you, as a human individual, are no different than the people they're spoken of in the book of Acts. 
They're just people. And frankly, there's more people to win to Christ today in our world than there were back then. And we have more tools and methods and ways to reach our world than these people ever had while they were living here on earth. So anyway, just looking through this, and if, if you'll bear with me, just want to give an outline. Go ahead and put the next slide up there. Evangelists must be equipped to help seekers navigate. I hope seekers doesn't offend you. Sometimes it offends people. But a seeker is somebody who's looking for truth. That's how I define it. Seekers navigate the questions and obstacles to faith that uniquely characterize each individual. Someone said that only 5% of Christians win another individual to Christ in their Christian lifetime. That means that 95% of us don't ever win someone to Christ. Now that's not saying that we didn't try to win them to Christ, but if only 5% of us win, that's not really a very good batting average, is it? You would hope that every Christian would at least make attempts to be evangelists to win people to Christ. I'm not sure that all of these uh, people, the 120 going back to Acts chapter 1 and 2 and 3, I don't know that they all won somebody to Christ. I know there's a great missionary named David Brainerd. He's a, a hero of the faith, a great missionary. In his lifetime, they claim that he won about 150 people to Christ in his lifetime. And that's a lot of people. What if everybody in here won 10 people or 20 people or 100 people to Christ in a lifetime? Now, when we're talking about mission work, it starts with winning people to Christ. It starts with us knowing what we believe and why we believe it and taking that into the world and then looking for seekers as evangelists, those bearing the good word, the good news of the gospel, and bringing the good news to them. And if you are, as I preached this morning, if you are a true disciple of Christ, you are not afraid of identifying with Christ. A true disciple of Christ is not afraid to identify with Christ or be known as a Christian. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We cannot be ashamed. Discipleship starts by not being ashamed of who we identify with, the Lord Jesus Christ. But just give me the next slide, if you would, here, my brother. This is kind of an outline of this, and if I was teaching this in a... Uh, rather than a preaching situation like we are tonight, I would take some time to go through the outline. You can give me the next beautiful map. This is Paul's second missionary trip. You can see that it started uh, uh, down uh, here in uh, Jerusalem to Antioch, all the way back around, and he ends up uh, he ends up at Antioch actually on this second missionary trip. But this, what's taking place right here in Acts chapter 17, takes place in this big journey of Paul. Wherever he went, he was uh, being a witness and telling people about Jesus Christ. So we see, first of all, Paul at Athens here in verses 16 through 21. We've read through the text there. It says in 16 that his spirit was stirred in him. Why was it stirred in him? Because he looked around and he looked at what was going on in the city and he said, this isn't, a, this isn't what God intended. This is what I've been called to do 
is to bring the truth of God's word to the, these people. And his spirit was stirred within him. He saw the idolatry. He saw the secularism, if I could say, of the people. He could see the, the philosophy, Greek philosophy, the Epicureans, the Stoics, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Epicurus, people like that, could see the influence and he could see the, the, idea, the polytheism where there were many gods that they worship. And he looked at it and he said, this is an absolute mess. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. So then he gives a message in verses 22 through 31. But let me just uh, talk about the kind of people here first that he's looking at. He's looking at two major groups. And I think as you look at the definitions of these two groups, you could identify people that live in the world today with these groups. The Stoics were pantheistic. Pantheistic. Pantheists, Hindus are pantheistic. What they believe is that the universe is God and we're all part of God, part of the universe. In fact, that's where the word comes from. Pan in the Greek means all, theos, God. So a pantheist means that everything essentially is God. And uh, so they don't see a personal individual God like Christians do. They think that they can, that ultimately they will ascend and become more a part of God when they get rid of the flesh that's hanging on to them. The Epicureans maintained the existence of gods, but claimed that they did not intervene in our daily life. It's kind of like deists. Deists believe in God, but they don't think God has anything to do really with what's going on in the world. They don't believe in answered prayer. They don't believe in miracles and whatnot. But they believe that life was to be lived to the maximum pleasure and experience. For once one died, that was it. It was over. There was nothing uh, after that. They believed that life was all about experience. There are many today that that's their living. Eat, drink, and be merry. Carpe diem. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. What's going to happen to you after you die? You're just going to go into the ground. It's all over. There's nothing after. These are the types of people that Paul had to deal with. These are the types of people that we have to deal with and many others in our culture today. Now I'm pointing out Acts chapter 17 for this reason. The sermon that Paul preaches in Acts 17, or the things that he mentions, are much different from what Peter mentions in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to Israel. He's preaching to the Israelites who have crucified Jesus Christ. By the time we get to Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching largely to a Gentile population, Greeks. He's in Athens, Greek, uh, Greece. He's in the capital city of Greece. So he's preaching to a whole different crowd. These are not religious people like Peter preached to in Acts chapter 2. These are much more secularized people, kind of like secularized people of today, that uh, Paul is preaching to at this particular time. If you'd give me the next slide, I'd appreciate that, okay? Now, here's my point. You have to know what you're talking about to help people. You have to know what you're talking about 
to help people come to know Christ as Savior. The goal is to get people to know him. So the first thing you have to do is you have to get to know him. Doesn't that make sense? That's very logical. That's why we are so big, these faith fellowship churches are so big on discipleship. Because you need to know the Bible. You ought to be in your Bible Institute. Somehow, some way, you ought to sign up and be part of that. You ought to be part of the discipleship ministries of your church. Not only being discipled, but discipling someone else as a leader. You have to get to know God. He doesn't need to be the unknown God to you. Many Christians are very shallow in their faith. Very shallow. Now, I'm not against tract distribution. Please don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. And there's probably other people listening. And if you hit my address, I'll get letters on Tuesday morning for sure. However, I'm not against tract distribution. But if that's all you know about Christ, and that's all you can do is take a piece of paper, it's better than nothing. It's better than sleeping in or watching a football game. If that's all you do, that's not what you're called to do. You're called to be a witness. A witness like Paul the Apostle was a witness. And he lays down a pretty good pattern of things, questions that people need to have answers to and need to know about. So you're going to get a little bit, just for a moment here, don't be afraid now, a little bit of an apologetics class, all right? We not only need to know what we believe, but we need to know why we believe it. Why do you believe that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh? Now, I know a good answer to that. That would be my pastor told me so. Another good answer to that would be my mother told me so. That's probably even better than your pastor telling you so. She's probably more believable than your pastor. Anyway, nothing against pastors, Brother Sam, okay? But you understand what I'm saying. But that's too superficial. I shouldn't believe that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh just because my pastor told me or my mother told me. And I might even say this. Now, I know the Bible says so, but when you're witnessing to somebody with from an atheistic persuasion and you say, well, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he says, well, why do you believe that? And then your answer is, well, the Bible told me so. His response will be this. Well, I don't believe the Bible. So immediately he discounts what the scripture says. So now where does your discussion go? And by the way, if you studied and you know your scriptures and you are a little bit logical, you can start asking questions. You know things about the Bible and they, what the Bible says about the resurrection. You can begin to back people into a corner to bring some evidence and proof that what you're saying is true. Now, I'm not trying to frustrate you, but I'm just simply saying this. I've been in the ministry now for 46 years. 
And I'm a little disappointed at Christians who really don't want to learn any more than the Romans Road or read the Gospel of John or a Psalm when they're having a bad day. That ain't going to cut it today, folks. It's not going to. So I want you to see, here's Paul. He's in Athens. He's just looking around. He says, this place is a spiritual wasteland and it's a mess. Now I want you to see what he talked about and was able to defend. What did he say? He said this, and we need to know this. Men are seekers and they're seeking divinity. It's easy to believe in a higher power. It's easy to believe that. Why? Just the whole law of cause and effect. We, here we are. This is the effect. What's the cause? Here's the universe. What's the cause? Here's a good answer. The universe created itself. How's that sound? Why did you laugh at that? That's what some atheists believe. They believe that the universe created itself. Or they believe that the universe came from nothing. Lots of things come from nothing. Can you name one? <laughs> cause and effect. So. I, there, there's reasons for why we believe what we believe, and they're logical reasons. So, men are seekers, men desire worship. You can go anywhere in the world and you'll find people worshiping. They might worship a rock or a stone or something, but they're worshiping something because they have a sense about them that there's something greater than they are. Because it's common sense when you look around. Somebody made all of this. You know where this building came from? There were two lumber trucks driving down the street back about 110 years ago. They were going in opposite directions. They smashed into each other head on. All of the materials on those trucks went up in the air and came down and this is what it came out of all that. Isn't this quite an accident? Why are you laughing? Well, how about the universe? The universe is just the result of a gigantic big bang explosion that happened 18 billion, million, trillion, gazillion years ago? Oh yeah, I buy that, I buy that. Why would you laugh when I say this building is a result of two big trucks smashing into one another, but the universe, as complex as the universe is, is not an accident or it's, it's an accident in the sense that it came out of a big bang or a big explosion that really had no rhyme or reason or purpose in it. It's the same thinking, my friend, but did you ever take your friend, your atheist or agnostic friend, and back them into a corner? While they're making fun of your Jesus, did you back them into a corner and say, well, where do you think the universe came from? And then they say, here's the answer, the Big Bang, that's where it came from. The next question is, well, where did the Big Bang come from? What's the answer to that question? They usually don't go back any further in history than that. So, God made the world. You have to, how can we prove that? How can you discuss that with someone? He's the Lord of all. He's not confined or limited to the physical. God isn't physical. Physics is physical. Time, space, and matter. That's the world we live in. God is not limited to time. He is outside of what we understand as space and in space. And he is not made of matter. You know that? 
Can you discuss that with someone from a scientific perspective? He's self-sufficient, self-existent, he's spiritual, not physical, and he is the giver, and he is the author, and he is the sustainer of life. Let me ask you this, where does life come from? I had a congressman ask me one time, you know, Pastor Grace, I really struggle with this abortion thing. He said, he said to me, he said, you know, the question is, when does life begin? And I looked at him and I said, Congressman, let me tell you when life begins. Let me tell you when my life began. My life began when the sperm, the living sperm and the living egg of my mother and father came together and I became, I was conceived and I became a living human being. By the way, the same thing happened to them and the same thing happened to their grandparents and the same thing to their great-grandparents. It said, so when did life begin? A long time ago. So if you're going to kill some little baby because you got a question in your mind when life began, there shouldn't be any question at all. Your life is a product of someone else's life, which is a product of someone else's life, which is a product of someone else's life, which you don't want me to go any further. We need to go home tonight, all right? You get it? So where did that original life come from? I'll tell you what the atheist says. Came from slime, came from inorganic material. It came from a rock. It came, it came from something that wasn't living. That's called abiogenesis, that life comes from death. Can you give me an example of that? I can see life going to death, but I don't see death going to life except, there is an exception. <laughs> you know where I'm going with that one, don't you? Yeah. So my atheist friend, well, I believe that, death, that life comes from death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he has the power over all life. That makes people stop and think. You know what we have to do? We got to make people think. We got to be missionaries. We got to engage people. We can't run away from conversation. Give me the next. He's the creator. He declared boundaries in man's life. He has a will. He has a mind. He has a heart. He has a will. It is his will that men seek him. He is near. He's not a long way away. He's not off in some other galaxy somewhere. He's near. He lives in my heart. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He's near. He's creator, sustainer, provider. He's man has made is made in God's image. The reason why we have a spiritual nature to us is because we're made in the image and likeness of God. God is intelligence. Some of you are. God has affection. God is love. He doesn't just love, He is love. So what about us? You know what human beings need? They need to love and be loved. That's what we need. So God is a mind, he has affection, and he has a will, God's will. That's what we're trying to seek ourselves, God's will, and follow. Man is made in God's image, and we did not create God. What's the next slide up there? What did he say? He said, Paul said all this stuff. This is how he's witnessing to people. This is what, what, what we need to know. This is how we need to approach our world. This is how you turn the world upside down. You don't just hand out a piece of paper. You don't just sit there and, well, if someone asks me if, a Christ, if I'm a Christian, I'll tell them. 
We're not supposed to be secret service Christians. We're supposed to be found out. We're supposed to be discovered. We're supposed to be aggressive. He's superior in intelligence. He has moral expectations. Judgment is coming and he is in charge and he will judge. He's righteous and has set the standard and he has ordained all this. He's ordered it. Let me look at the next slide here. Let's see where we are. So there's a response to the message. Response, there's three responses there in those three verses. What does it say? Some mocked. Paul the apostle? I mean, if Paul the apostle witnessed to me, I wouldn't mock him. But they did. They made fun of him. They made light. They said, this is stupid. This is idiotic. So don't be offended when people don't want to listen to you. They actually make fun of you. They made fun of Paul. They cut off John the Baptist's head and they crucified Jesus. You poor baby. Well, they made fun of me. They called me a Bible banger. They called me a preacher. He called me a holy roller. Aw, aw. Hold just a second. I'll get, there we go. I feel so sorry. Come on, get some, come on. Come on, let's toughen up a little bit, huh? Some mocked. Some said, we'll hear you again. They procrastinated. They said, you know, I don't have enough information yet. I'll come back, I'll hear some more. But then it says, some believed. And those, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring, bring people to believe. Let me see the next slide. Now, this is called the Engel scale. I want to encourage you. This is not biblical. This is just a logical development of how people move from unbelief to belief. So it's broken down in 10 little pieces or parts. Why am I showing you this? Because I want to encourage you. We think that when we witness to people, if they don't get saved, we failed. Oh, I, I witnessed my uncle Tom and Uncle Tom, you know, he said, nah, I'm not interested. I don't want to, huh, I feel so bad. And you should feel bad that he didn't get saved. But that doesn't mean you're not successful and that you're not a good witness and you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Notice if you start at the bottom. What we are here to do is to move people forward. My job is to move people from one to two. If I come across some guy and I start witnessing to him and talking about God and he says, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. And he really means it. Well, he needs to learn what I'm talking about. And I'm his success. I didn't win him to Christ, but I took him from no awareness of God to some awareness of God. I'm talking to all of you here. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're not a failure. We're here to move people forward. We're to move people towards God. Some awareness. Then we bring people in contact with Christians. Other weirdos like ourselves, we bring them in con contact with. We give, get them to a place where there's an interest in Christ. We they decide to investigate Jesus. Then they begin to grasp some of the truths. 1972, I became a Christian. I got saved. I was number three. That's where I was. I, I had awareness of God. I wasn't unaware. I had some awareness. But contact with Christians, I was beginning to have contact with Christians. I was not saved. But they were filtering into my life. And they started witnessing to me. So I was a number three. 
So what did these people do? As they began and shared the word of God with me, they created an interest. Now I'm gonna be honest with you, I was not interested at first. I was just being polite, hoping that he would go away. And by the way, after he witnessed to me the first time, he went away, but he came back. <laughs> and he took five minutes, six minutes, and shared some things with me and I. <laughs> it's really nice. It's really good for you. I'm glad you're happy. Good. Are we done now? Okay. We'll see you later. And he left. I thought, man, he's gone. But he came back. And every time he came back, he brought something, something. And what he was doing is bringing me. Then I remember one day that he shared something with me. And what he said really made sense to me. And my boss saw me talking to him. And when he left, my boss came over and he said, hey, I see Doug's been, get, he's trying to get you to be one of these Bible guys too. And I looked at my boss, I said, you know, what he says makes sense. And my boss went, oh no, not you too. <laughs> yeah, me too. I wasn't saved, but I was interested. And now, you know what I did? I went and got a Bible. And you know what everybody does when they get a Bible? I started in Genesis and started reading it. And I got to chapter 43 and I was bored to tears. And I was done. I don't know what this guy's talking about. In 43 chapters, I didn't get the answer to whatever this was. But I did investigate. But you know what he did? He kept coming back. And I began to grasp the truth. These things have I written unto you that believe upon the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, I was raised that you can't know you have eternal life. In the Bible, he showed me that in the Bible, it contradicted what I believed about truth. And it stopped me in my tracks. I had nothing to say to that. The Bible shut my mouth. And the Holy Spirit of God took that passage of scripture and that truth and kept, kept ruminating on it and thinking about it, grasping the truth. I began to understand the implications that salvation brought eternal life and rejecting salvation would bring eternal damnation. I began to understand the implications of all that. And then I began to accept the truth, but I really didn't know what to do. And one day he came into my office where I work and he went through another few verses of scripture and he looked at me and he said, what would keep you from trusting Jesus as your savior today? And I felt like, oh no, I started sweating and my whole life went before me and I, all of a sudden, a holy calm came over me. What would keep me from trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior today? Nothing. Amen. Nothing. I accepted its implications. August 29th, 1972, I made a decision to surrender to Jesus Christ, repent of my sins, and call upon him to forgive me and save me and give me the gift of eternal life. Believing that he was God, manifest in the flesh, he died on the cross to shed his blood for all of my sins and that he rose from the dead. I believe that and I prayed that. And that's why I'm here tonight, because of that. 
But I started down in number three. Started in number three. I'm trying to encourage you tonight. Move people forward. We're all missionaries. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We must speak, uh, speak up and speak out. We can, this group of people can, turn the world upside down. They say, oh, we couldn't do that. We, get out. Go out on the street. Go get order a pizza or something. Because we are going to do it by God's grace and with God's help and God's Holy Spirit and God's people coming together. We can turn the world in our day upside down. That's what mission focus is all about. Bow your heads and pray with me tonight. Would you do that? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of being here tonight with these folks, trying to motivate and encourage them. Lord, I motivated myself. I don't know about them, <laughs> but I'm motivated. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that our folks tonight, these young people, would be motivated to take the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world, that they will follow their pastors, that they will become more knowledgeable of God, that they'll get into discipleship, they will get into their Bible Institute, that they will learn more and be better equipped to take the truth of God's world, word to this world today. And I'll thank you for it and praise you in Jesus' name. And all the people said tonight, amen. amen. God bless you. Pastor, come.